In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. By 1934, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker had committed more than 13 murders, committed scores of crimes, burglaries, robberies. Um, they were, uh, they killed, uh, include, the people that they killed included several police officers, sheriff deputies, and prison guards. Um, they had also kidnapped several people, stolen several automobiles, crossed state lines with those. By the time the FBI, which was then called the Bureau of Investigations, caught up with them, um, it had taken more than four years to track them down. When they finally did track them down, they ambushed them in a rural Louisiana. The couple refused to get out of the car, and so the police officers from every side opened fire with a barrage of gunfire, and the two perished in that event. May 23, 1934, the crime spree known as Bonnie and Clyde came to an end. As far as most people were concerned, these two got exactly what they deserved. And I think some of that um, we kind of felt, uh, I mean, we still feel as a nation, but then as a nation um, long before my time, that people sort of got what they deserved. And, and at this Depression-era event, a lot of these crime sprees that went on, people like John Dillinger and, and Babyface Nelson and... Um, or something like Pretty Boy Floyd, and all of these, uh, these gangster criminals. They sort of capture the imagination of America with their sort of anti-hero type, but eventually they all perished. And as I said, many people viewed the fact that they simply got what they deserved. And I thought about how we think that way a lot of times. It's good to know that people get what they deserve. We, we feel comforted by that fact. Um, I think we feel comforted because we think, well, eventually bad guys always lose and good guys always win. Um, it, it helps us to feel like there's some sort of justice in the world, that people get what they deserve. The story of ancient Israel is sort of that story as well, that they got what they deserve. Um, it was a story of a, a nation once prosperous and secure, powerful, its borders safely established but a nation that began to wander away from God. And along came these preachers, they're called prophets, men and women, who would say to the nation, turn back to God. If you don't, judgment is coming. And they continued to preach the same message over and over. And when judgment came, the prophets showed up again. Different preachers, different men and women, who said, see, we told you so. Now turn back to God. But no one seemed to delight in the fact that Israel got what it deserved. If you're going to understand anything about the Old Testament lesson today, just a little bit of kind of background history. As I said, the nation had been once prosperous and secure. And then it divided into two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Israel quickly slid into idolatry. From the outset, it began to turn away from God and never turned back to God. If you read the books of, uh, of the kings, never do you find a king in northern kingdom Israel who followed the way of David. They're all wicked, different degrees of wickedness, but they all turn away from God. And in 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria enters into the northern kingdom, destroys its capital and its main cities, takes people captive, moves them literally out of the land into exile, 
and repopulates the area with expatriate Assyrians as a way of taking hold of the land and controlling it. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel simply ceased to exist not long after that, leaving only Judah and Benjamin in the south. And Judah has a different story. It's a story of, of good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king. It, it goes on like this if you read through the stories of the kings. And in Judah, things take a longer time for them to, to divulge into that sort of debauchery, but eventually they do. Along come prophets along the way, the same thing. Turn back, trust in God, repent. But they don't. And eventually in 587 B.C., the Babylonians invade the southern kingdom of, of Judah destroy the city of Jerusalem, again, take many of the people into exile, and off they go, repopulating it, both with their own Babylonians and as other nations that wanted to come in and take over the land. But something happened with the southern kingdom of Judah, this tribe of Judah and Benjamin. As they were taken off into exile, they realized what had happened. And they decided that they were going to keep together as a, as a people. And, and that's what they did. They, 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 they bonded together. They, they decided to preserve their faith, preserve their, their heritage, preserve their nation, even in exile. And after 50 years, they return to the land. The Babylonians are overtaken by the Persians. The Persian king says, eh, go home. But imagine what you find when you go home after 50 years. Children were born in exile who never knew Jerusalem, never knew the land. People who had long since been out, you know, go back as, as grandparents, remembering a, a world that now is completely gone to them. And it's worse than that. When they get back, not only is the, the place still in ruins, but the people who do live there don't want these would-be interlopers coming around. And so they harass them and they... They attack them and they do everything they can to prevent any rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And these, these, these Jews, they're called Jews now because people of Judah, come back and they, they cry out to God for help. How long are you going to let us suffer like this? And, and in Isaiah 63, not 64, in Isaiah 63, here's what they said. We have become like those whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. The cry of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, we, we, we like somebody you never knew. We're trying to live in this land and, and restore and rebuild who we once were, but it's impossible. And then in Isaiah 64, here's what they cry out to God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, just that you would just pull back the heavens and come down and that the mountains might quake at your presence. If only you would come down and, and set things right. Get this thing back to the way it was. They had seen God's mercy before. And they were hoping for it now. Oh God, please set things right. And we know what it's going to look like. When God, our God, acts, it's going to be powerful, isn't it? Verse 4 of Isaiah 64. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Oh, it's so bad. It's nothing like what we thought it would be. But if you, if you will act on our behalf, God, we can... This thing can turn around quickly. It could, be, it could be something glorious once again, like the good old days of old. Oh, we know what you can do. 
only you will. But here's the rub. Here's the difficulty. Why should God act on behalf of these people? What have they done to deserve His mercy? Have they shown enough contrition? Have they bowed low enough? Have they behaved well enough? Do What have they done to deserve salvation? What have they done to deserve God's mercy? Nothing. And Isaiah anticipates this too. Behold, he says, you were angry when, when we sinned and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. We've kind of lived here for a long time. And shall we be saved? It's a rhetorical question. What do you think? Shall we be? Have we done enough? No. We have all become, Isaiah says, like one who is unclean. Like a leper. We've all become like a colony of lepers. And all of our righteous deeds, even the good things that we do, are a polluted garment. There is perhaps no more sanitized translation of an ancient text than this one. Because we just could not handle the sensibilities of this preacher. They are, it, it, is, it is gross. And, and so we have, in our translation committees, sanitized it about as much as we can. We are deserving of nothing, God. We are deserving of punishment because the truth is, even our good deeds are really pretty filthy. They're like a polluted garment. We were judged for wickedness. We, were suffer- we suffered because of our wickedness. And we're suffering still. And if that's the situation you are in, if that's the situation you were in as an ancient Israelite, as an, ancient, uh, an ancient Jew, what's your hope? What, what, can you, what, what can you put out there to plead for God's help? Verse 8. The big turn here. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are, the, we are the work of your hand. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. The, the prophet gives um, two metaphors, doesn't he? The first one, familial. The second one, artisan and, and artwork. The familial metaphor. You are our Father. Think about the the plea. What's the basis for for Israel's hope? It's in a relationship, an indissoluble bond, an irrevocable relationship. You are our father. We've all seen poor parenting, haven't we? I mean, we know the people who are poor parents. And you don't have to be a parent to understand this relationship because you can see it in people and you know what it looks like. We've seen people who who do not live up to their responsibilities as parents. And we say, but she's his mother. He's her father. How could they do that? How could they they not do what they should be doing? How can they fail? There's something moral about a parental relationship. How could they do that to their own child? And this is Israel's plea. You know, there might not be pity in the wider world, but there should be pity in families, right? 
And, and we've seen that. We know. We know that's why parents do this. We've, if you've never seen it, God bless you, you're fortunate. But a parent who has a child with a drug problem. And over and over and over, that parent tries and tries and tries. A parent who, who brings their child into their home, even after they're an adult and should be out on their own. Why? Because they're your child. You'll do everything again and again and again. And when there's one last chance, there's still one more behind it. Because that's what you do. You have a moral obligation and you try. Now, I'm not saying there doesn't come a time when parents have to say, this is the end. You know, I'm enabling. I'm not helping. I understand that. Please don't hear me say more than I'm saying. What I am saying is that there is this bond between parent and child that goes on long after the 18th birthday. And Israel's cry to God is, you are our father. We are your child, children. But secondly, there's another metaphor. It's the, the, the prophet switches from one to the other without so much as a comma. You know, I mean, I think we get, we get a semicolon in, in the English translation. And the original, boom, just right on to the next one of off consecutive. And we're, we're on. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Jettison all the family stuff. <laughs> we have a completely different image right here, don't we? And we've all done this. Every one of us here has, has made something. We, we've written a poem or a story or, or made a quilt or a portrait or a needlepoint or woodworking or something. You've made something somewhere along the line. Even if it was in second grade in an art class, you've made something. And imperfect it was. You know that. Even if you were a, a, you know, a professional artist, nothing's ever really perfect. I remember Jim was telling me one time about something we were doing here Every that his father used to say, every flaw of feature. Is that how it goes, Jim? Something, every flaw of feature, yeah. That there's even something good about the flaws. But when you make something, you own it. It's yours. There's some connection to it. it you, have, you have ownership in it. And this is Israel's plea. Please, do not give us what we deserve. Give us mercy. Why? Because you're our Father. Because we're the work of your hands. You made us. We are your artwork. Have mercy upon us. We are yours. Don't give us what we deserve. Give us what we don't deserve. Give us mercy. Um, You may not know this. You may not have woke up thinking about this. You certainly didn't go to bed last night. Probably didn't. Staying up late partying. Welcoming in the new year. But Happy New Year is the beginning of a brand new year today. Now I know that your calendar runs out for another month before you have to switch over to a new one. But in the church world, today is the beginning of a new year. The first Sunday of Advent. The first Sunday of Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas. So that's right, you have three more Sundays and it's going to be Christmas, which is almost unthinkable, isn't it? In some ways, this year seems to have lasted like 13 years, and in other ways, it seems to have gone by very quickly, and I'm not sure how to put that together. But now's the beginning of the new year. And Advent does to us every year the same sort of of kind of tension-filled reality. It places us in the middle of time. It places us 
waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for the Messiah to come in the first advent, looking backward at that event and and understanding what it felt like to wait for the Messiah to come, and then looking forward, knowing that he has come, waiting for him to come again. We have this tension-filled reality. The already he has come, the not yet he has yet to return. It's between first and second advent. And in that reality, we feel both things. Both the goodness of God, filled with all of the blessings that have come. That life in Christ is life lived in the kingdom right here and now. That we can enjoy the blessings of heaven right here, right now. And at the same time, it's the not yet. We still live in a world filled with pain, with anguish, with difficulty. We still live in a world filled with with hurts. We still live in a world where, where there is so much that is heavy upon our hearts. It's the already and the not yet. And we can feel both this goodness and this, this cry of Isaiah, oh, that you would rip open the heavens and come down. And in Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 13, oh, that he would rip open the heavens and bring us up. You know, bring us into the heavenly kingdom where the final judgment will take place. That we are between first and second advent. There's a story of a preacher who had... Um, in his uh, in the pulpit, a hundred dollar bill, and he and he pulls out the one hundred dollar bill and walks down among the people, holds it up and says, "Who here would like to have this one hundred dollar bill?" And as you imagine, hands went up all over the place. You know, um, yeah, I'll take it. I, I can use another hundred dollar bill. And, and hands all over the place. And so he takes the hundred dollar bill and he he crumbles it up into a ball, smashes it up really good, and says, "All right, now who wants it?" People look at each other like, yeah, I'll take it. Give me that crumpled up $100 bill. And so he takes it and he throws it on the floor. He stomps on it. Picks it back up and says, now who wants it? People look around at each other like, yeah, I'll take it. Send it on over here. And he says, we've all learned a lesson, haven't we? No matter how crumbled up, no matter how filthy and ugly... This bill has not lost its value. And neither have we. We are made in the image of God. We are His craftsmanship and and workmanship. We are His children. And we are valuable in His sight, filthy though we are. He has not forgotten us. He does not always give us what we deserve. Often He gives us what we don't deserve. His mercy. Amen.